Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. Getting the right vibes about security is something that can instill fear and uncertainty in many minds and businesses. This conversation between our guests this week, Ted Harrington, an ethical hacker, and Shivaguru, helps you understand and explore questions such as, do I really need to stay two steps ahead of the bad guys? How is this even possible? What it takes to stay in the game with the bad hackers in these times especially, where business ecosystems are complex with multiple partnerships and service providers? So how do we discover those trust boundaries and develop layers of defense? TED talks with an emphasis on looking at security in terms of the right way and to pursue a good thing. He also shares how to collaborate with security teams and companies and hacker teams, how to sensitize leadership and bring about the right mindset towards security. He then shares a message for people interested in pursuing security as a career. Listen on. Hi, TED. Welcome to the Software People Stories. Thanks it's for been a, me. Yeah, so finally we were able to find some common time to talk. We usually begin our conversations with the guest introducing oneself. So if we can start with your origin story, you know, how did you get into IT and more particularly the kind of things that you do now? How has your trajectory been? Great. Yeah, well, thanks again for having me. Thanks everyone for tuning in for this episode. Um, yeah, so my name is Ted Harrington, and I am in the fortunate position that I get to lead a group of ethical hackers. And we have this consulting company called uh, ISE, Independent Security Evaluators. And, you know, we get to help some of the most foremost tech companies in the world solve their security challenges. You know, we're the, we're the good guy hackers. So people uh, reach out to us and ask them to hack their stuff. And as a result of all the different pieces of security research we've published over the years, we've hacked everything from cars to medical devices to phones and password managers. And happy to tell all kinds of stories about those if, if we want. Uh, as a result, I, a couple of years ago, realized that there were a lot of problems that it seemed like everybody had. Everybody seemed to have the same problems. I kept having the same conversations over and over again. And uh, ultimately, I decided that I needed to write a book to help everybody who could get their hands on the book, solve those problems. So I wrote a book called Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right. And it basically identifies the very rampant misconceptions that hold many companies back in terms of how to secure software systems and what they should replace them with instead. So that's my whole worldview. Everything that we would talk about here is kind of coming from that viewpoint of ethical hacking, which is the corner of the security world I come from. And, uh, and then, of course, being an entrepreneur in that space doing these things. So that's sort of the quick glimpse, I guess, into me. That's good. So what got you interested in this space? Yeah, so my, my career journey, as I sort of look back to, I guess, I mean, you know, everyone's career starts at the beginning of their life, I suppose. But uh, when I think about my moment in college, when I had kind of figured out what it was I really wanted to do, I knew that I just... I wanted to start companies like that's it was I'm just really stimulated by the idea of creating something that didn't exist before. And so I started a company while I was in college. I went to school in Washington, D.C., and it was it was a really enjoyable experience. And I learned a lot. And it was 
very formative for me, but I ultimately learned that it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And the business that I created was serving consumers. And that was a, a first really important lesson for me. Like I didn't really like the idea of a business serving consumers because I felt like consumers, myself included, well, we're all humans. I feel like we can be really irrational in the decisions that we make. And I realized, well, I want to do something that serves businesses because even though businesses are highly illogical, uh, at least you can anticipate where the Ill, the lack of logic will lie. And so I wound up uh, deciding to uh, join a company that even though I never wanted to work for anybody else, I decided to join a company that the CEO and founder of that company, all he wanted to do was mentor somebody. He didn't want to be involved in the day-to-day -day operations anymore. And so, of course, I saw that opportunity, jumped at it, and I did that for about five or six years. And it set me up to become the CEO of a, a tech company that was focused in water. And I quickly realized that that probably wasn't for me either. And then that was the moment when sort of all these things that I'd learned over these different years sort of came to a head when I got introduced to uh, the guy who would go on to become, who's now my business partner and has been my business partner for almost a decade. And the first time we met, I, I remember it so vividly. I was living in Southern California and he was living uh, just outside of Washington, DC. And I didn't have time to like make the proper journey. I mean, that's a six hour flight cross country. So it was, I took the first flight out Saturday morning, get there by Saturday evening. He and I went out to dinner and by maybe like four in the morning, the next day, we'd been hanging out for like 12 hours. And, and we realized let's do this where it was like instantly we clicked as, uh, as business partners. And what I had found in this opportunity was what I didn't even necessarily, I, I couldn't necessarily put words on it until I was exposed to it and could look back on it and realize, whoa, those were the things that I need. And so by this point in my life, I now realize that security has really given me the opportunity to pursue all four of the principles in my life that I've identified that are important to me in a professional context. There's more than these principles, obviously, as a complete human. But, you know, I'm driven to do hard things, to do things that matter, to do things in the service of others and to get better every single day. And when you think about what defines security, those principles are the entire field of security. And so once I identified that, you know, met this guy who's just a you know, wonderful human being, wonderful business person, it was like, I'm in, I'm home. I have been looking for this, you know, since I first started that company back in college. And so that's kind of how I got into it. And it's, it's a little atypical, I think, for security professionals, because most security professionals feel like, well, you have to have been hacking something since you're four years <laughs> old. And that wasn't me. Yeah, that's very interesting. So typically your business plan was on a napkin, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> the, the business plan is kind of a funny one because uh, I don't even know if it's written on a napkin. The business okay. even started with just research, right? It was uh, the first piece of research that our company did was hack a car. And when the news was published about hacking that car, it was pretty widely covered. And the result was that companies came calling and they said, well, you guys know how to hack things. Uh, can you help us hack our thing? Hmm. And it was like, yeah. <laughs> and so I, th that, I mean, as simple as that sounds, it's obviously more sophisticated and complex than this, but at its core foundational element, that is what the business is, is help people by hacking the thing before the bad guy hacks the thing. And so you don't need a big fancy business plan to think about that. Now you monetize it and how you scale it. Yeah, you need, it gets complex after that, but that's how, that's the business plan.
Yeah, that's interesting. So how do you get into the mindset of outthinking the hacker? Oh, I love that question. I write about that question a lot in my book because I think that is that mindset that you're uh, alluding to is one of the most important elements to success in security. Because to defend against the attacker, we have to think like the attacker. And I don't even necessarily frame it as far as quite the way you described it. Because And a lot of people do ask it that way, thinking like, well, how do we stay one step ahead of the attacker? And I'm not even sure that's possible to stay mm -hmm. one step ahead of the attacker. I don't know if it's impossible, but I'm not convinced it is possible. But for sure, I know that if we think like the attacker, we can at least be in the game with them, right? And maybe the metaphor here is it's not like if you're a, a soccer player, it's not how can this soccer player have a certain set of skills that, you know, this professional soccer player have a set of skills that some other professional soccer player doesn't have. It's more like, how do I make sure that as a professional soccer player, I have as skills as elite and ideally better than others and then can come to the game with the better game plan. And that's really what we're, we're in right now. And the, the attackers, they're kicking our butt. We're absolutely getting decimated mm -hmm. by the attackers because the defenders are having to convince ourselves that we must think like the attacker. Mm. The attackers are like, nah, game's on. We, we, we don't have, we're not like, there is no one in a boardroom in some, you know, black market hacker den somewhere being like, so should we attack these companies? No, they are like, they're going all out. Whereas on the defender side, we're like, well, prove the return on investment and where we get in our own way. And so it's not really an even match, but in order to, that's a really long roundabout way to get to your question, but to think like the attacker, the way that we do it is that we have to do two things. First thing we have to do is we have to ask those hard questions, ask those what if questions. And then the second thing we have to do is we have to adopt that malicious way of thinking. And most people don't think maliciously. Most people are wired to be good. So we have to think with a little bit of evil while at the same time saying, well, we assume it's going to happen this way, but what if it happens that way instead? And the combination of those two things, that's actually how you ultimately think like an attacker. Yeah, so where do you draw the line in two perspectives? Now, one, typically when we talk about implementing IT systems, there are different roles and skill sets that come into play. Particularly when you said uh, hacking cars or devices, there is also the hardware part and then there is the software. There are these architects and the user experience people, the developers, testers, and so on. So who should be thinking about securing their solutions and how would they all work together? Everybody. <laughs> the the trite, you know, uh, cheeky answer is everybody should be thinking about it. Okay. Um, and, and I'm not the only person to, you know, roll that out. But I recognize that that's maybe hard to implement because it actually isn't everybody's job. It's sort of like saying, you know, growing revenue is everybody's job. And ultimately, yeah, growing the company is everybody's job, but it's more the salespeople's job, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So whose job is it to actually ensure and improve the security of a system so one of the things that I advocate for very, very strongly is that you actually need both internal resources and external partners. And that sometimes surprises people because they'll say, they're like, wait, Ted, aren't you literally in the business of being that external partner? Shouldn't your case be like, only hire people like me and my peers? And uh, that would actually be very bad advice if, if I said, oh, don't hire you know, in-house because we got you. Because what happens when you have 
both. And you have both internal teams and you have external teams. They magnify each other's impact and they play different roles. So for example, when you are building your in-house team, no matter how much autonomy that team is given, they are going to have some degree of bias. They're going to be influenced to some degree to the politics that exist within an organization. And at the end of the day, if the CEO walks up to an individual's desk and says, you will do it this way, they're almost certainly going to do it that way. Not necessarily, but very likely they're going to do it that way. By contrast, that same CEO, if you walked up to me in the course of an engagement and said, you will do it this way, we'll say, respectfully, no, we won't. (laughs) Because that's why a company wants an outside organization, because they want that independence, but they also want the sort of specialized skill sets that they bring. They want the fact that they're kind of on demand. They want the fact that the second you sign a contract, you have access to all of them. But then you want internal resources so that they can even though to, to an extent they're subject to the, the bias and whims within an organization, they know how to navigate it. So mm-hmm. we're successful when our stakeholder or point of contact knows how to navigate the way the company works in order to achieve their mission. We want to transfer knowledge to them. We want to make their teams better. And that's another example of where internal and external teams really complement each other because you want that knowledge transfer. So Ultimately, whose responsibility is it is the combination of those two teams, Mm -hmm. the internal resources combined with your external resources. And then the one, uh, the one other element is the element I didn't mention yet, but is the linchpin to this whole thing is the leadership because security is not a technical issue. It's a leadership issue. The leadership doesn't understand why security matters. If they don't understand how to measure it, if they don't understand how it actually can deliver benefit to the business as opposed to avoid a bad thing. Those are two really different ways of thinking about it, pursuing a good thing versus avoiding a bad thing. If they don't understand those things, they don't have the right mindset, they will never succeed at security. It doesn't matter how smart of people you hire, it doesn't matter how many products you buy, it will never, ever, ever succeed. So it really starts with leadership and make no doubt about it, as technical, scientific, and complex as security is, security is a leadership issue more than a technical issue. That's interesting. Just picking on two things that you mentioned, you know, one about the knowledge transfer and second, that security is not just a technical issue. What I've observed over the years is earlier we used to talk about SQL injection or cross-site scripting and so on. But now everybody talks about either social engineering or supply chain attacks and so on. So are these things trainable or can someone get trained? And how do you sensitize leadership to consider these as important? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, every, every part of the, a, a security program can be learned. And I mean, look at the story I just told you about myself, right? I didn't, I wasn't in security a decade ago and now here I am. And I wrote a number one best-selling book on the topic. Like if I can learn it, other people can learn it, right? It's, it, it, it's not like you're born with some mystical power. It's just a matter of, can you go learn the concepts and figure out how to apply them? So as far as how do we get leadership to understand it as a leadership problem. Well, some of the key factors to that, fortunately, are already happening. Now they're happening really slowly, but they're happening. So one of the first areas of where this would really manifest in a positive way, even though this is a negative thing that I'm introducing, but is when we see the way that the aftermath that happens in a security breach and 
how the CEO tends to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. So if you go all the way back to something like the that major breach that Target had in 2003, you know, top levels of leadership all uh, lost their jobs. Um, when Sony had their big breach, similar thing. Now, one of the ugly things that's happening right now is a lot of companies are hiring chief information security officers purely to be the fall guy. That's like their pure role. You can see it in the job description. You can see it in the compensation. But I think that eventually will shake itself out and the market will be like, no, 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 no. CEO, this is still, a, this is still an executive, uh, executive problem. But uh, definitely seeing that these incidents aren't some isolated, you know, oh, it had to do with computers. It has nothing to do with me as a leader. That very much is a leadership problem. Certainly seeing that the way that the marketplace reacts adversely to uh, security incidents but I'm a really, I'm an aspirational person. I'm an I'm a optimist. I'm a more positive thinker. And so the way I like to look at how do we do this is rather than focusing on, well, here's all this bad stuff that can happen. And let's, let's do our best to help leaders not suffer those bad things. Instead, what I like to say is, well, what are the good things that we can get? And I think there's many of them. So one, for example, is pretty much any company that has any sort of culture, ethos, or mission to it has articulated their core values in some way. Now, maybe they haven't literally written them out, although most companies have, but they at least have something that they believe in. And it's usually what the CEO or the founding team believes in, and then it becomes sort of the mantra of the company. And usually, now every company has their different ethos, but usually they're centered around things like, oh, we believe in the customer experience or we believe in quality or we believe in excellence or we believe in integrity or whatever their things are. They're all usually good things, right? That they want to pursue. Well, security is a, a fantastic way to manifest those, those qualities and those values. Because if you care about the customer experience, protecting customer data is an amazing way to demonstrate that. If you care about quality, and you care about excellence, well, showing that you go above and beyond in trying to defend against a faceless set of enemies in a way that is oftentimes hard to measure return on investment. That's an amazing way to demonstrate that. But then when it comes down to brass tacks, to, to actual dollars and cents, and how do, you, how do you measure it? I think this is where the most exciting and most powerful part comes from, which is that most people think about security as um, if we suffer an incident, it's going to cost us this much money. And we think that incident is this many percentage points likely to happen. So we should multiply those two together. And that's how much money we should invest in security because it's a, it's a risk we're willing to take. But I say, no, that's, the, that's a, a negative frame. That's saying, how do we avoid a bad thing? Now I say, well, how do we get a good thing? And the way we can get a good thing is we can get a competitive advantage because in in the way that the world works today, companies that buy things from other companies, they want those products and services to be secure. And yet most organizations have tremendous difficulty proving, let alone actually doing it, but like first doing it and then proving it that they're secure. So think about how compelling that is when you pair those two together. The buyer wants a thing that most people can't provide. So if you can provide it, that's an enormous competitive advantage it enables companies to differentiate from the competition, enables them to close more sales faster, sometimes bigger sales. And I think that's so incredibly powerful. And the pioneers that I see in tech, they're thinking that way. But the, the masses are not yet thinking that way. And you know, when you're seeing the pioneers think a way that the masses don't think yet, you know that's where things are going. And that to me is really exciting. Do you also see the trend? On one hand, there are these closed ecosystems where 
whoever is the provider pretty much offers everything. But increasingly, it is more about leveraging the ecosystem where it's not just one player who is going to give you whatever services or solutions you want. So how does security come into play when there are different players who probably operate at their own priorities and cadences? So you're asking if one company has to hire multiple different companies to provide different services that that company needs. That's what you're asking about? Yes. And also while providing you know, today, you, know, you have these uh, you know, different components being used as a uh, you know, plug and play. I'm not probably going to write a, a mapping interface. Probably I'll use Apple or Google. And I don't know what Apple or Google's plans are. And suddenly if they decide to do something, then it probably impacts me and the services that I offer to my customers. Similarly, all these, the whole uh, supply chain, which comes together, how okay. can all of them play together to at least maintain the trust from the customers? Yeah, I totally agree. That's that's a very, very significant problem. This The, the supply chain within the ecosystem, absolutely. So... First thing that we have to realize is that the condition exists, right? There's like, it, it, it's just not a viable scenario that you're going to be able to do anything that has all been created by any one company. Mm. And so what that means, once we understand and accept that there is that condition, now we can start realizing where do the trust boundaries lie? So there, there are wherever, you know, there's going to be that interaction or integration between organizations, there's probably a trust boundary there. And what we want to think about are things like, on one hand, zero trust, which is, of course, a model that helps us trust nothing <laughs> until it's been proven to be trustworthy. And on the other hand, we want to think about things like defense in depth. Defense in depth helps us minimize the likelihood of a security incident by adding all these layers of defense and then minimizes the impact in the event that an attacker is in fact successful. So when we combine these different ideas, now we're able to look at sort of this ecosystem of all these integrations and it helps us think differently about how we think about our permissions models and our authorization models and so on and so forth. And so this is a really long way of saying, maybe I can describe it like in a metaphor. I like to, uh, I think metaphors are a great way to help us conceptualize these really complex topics. So we're all living in this pandemic right now. And, you know, hopefully the end is around the corner. Hopefully in certain parts of the world, it seems like it's arriving but certainly not everywhere. And if we think about the idea of zero trust, zero trust is essentially your, wherever you're going to be around other people, you're walking into a grocery store or you're walking into a place of worship or just walking down the street. And if you assume that every other person that you're about to interact with actively right now is infected with COVID, that makes you think a little bit differently about how you're going to interact with them. Mm -hmm. Now you still might have to interact with them, and there, that might be unavoidable, just like this whole ecosystem problem. But it helps you think differently about how you're going to do that. So that's sort of what zero trust is like. And then defense in depth is a way that we can help think about how do we deal with that problem. And so defense in depth, as I mentioned, is sort of adding layers of defense. And the idea is the combination of those layers is what uh, helps address the problem. So for example, again, using our COVID metaphor, we don't just wash our hands. We don't just wear masks. We don't just socially distance. We don't just try to keep our gatherings to a small size. We do all of those things. And it's a combination of them that makes it effective. So this is, uh, if we summarize all this together to your question about the ecosystem, we have to realize that yes, legitimately threats come from the integration of all these different parties. 
And then how we deal with addressing that risk is a matter of how we, tr how we think about trust, how we think about defense in depth. And then there's a whole element to, for larger organizations who actually do some sort of evaluation of security of these members in the ecosystem, there's a third step for them, but that's not necessarily for everybody. Okay, this is probably a controversial or provocative question. Have you observed when you sensitize people to security, zero trust, and all these concepts, do they become socially also isolated that they don't want to deal with everybody? You always look at everything with zero trust. Uh, yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, I have not seen that be the, uh, the reaction in terms of once people have applied this sort of zero trust or, or we can go back to the idea of thinking like an attacker, thinking like a hacker, it definitely changes the way you see the world. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I don't think it changes the way you see the world to the point where you not, your life is terrible now. But I can tell you coming from the corner of the world that is ethical hacking, mm -hmm. this, is, this is our life. We, every single thing in life we look at and we're like, how could I break that? How would I break that? How would someone else break this? And <laughs> my friends and my family, when they're out with me, they're like, can you just turn it off for a second? Like, let's just, let's just, let's have a nice relaxed thing. I'm like, but, but hold on. Um, so, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that I can't go have a good social time with people or that I'm constantly living in a state of fear. In fact, Maybe it does the opposite because you become desensitized to it a little bit and you just, you know that all this stuff's happening and it becomes maybe a little less shocking when you hear about it. But I think there's actually more positive than negative that comes out of that. So like, for example, because now just the way I look at my life, at all aspects of my life, I, I see systems and I see the way systems work and I, I can't help it. I cannot help but looking at the way a system works and say, how could I make it do something different? Like, I don't really wait in line too much anymore. I mean, there's lines I'll wait in if I have to, but most people, when they see a line, they'll queue up, right? They'll be like, oh, I guess it's the line into the thing. And I'll see the line and I'll be like, hmm, well, I'm not gonna wait in that. So where's the, how do I get in or e easier, earlier, faster or whatever? And that's fun for me and I don't have to wait in line as much. So I think that's a, a silver lining for sure. That's really interesting. The related point here is as you build, these systems, is your work primarily about securing or is it also covering incident responses? Well, our work is all about prevention. Okay. Uh, I don't, I don't really do a whole lot with incident response, but so there's, there's sort of the three domains. There's, there's more than this, but there's sort of three ways to think about security. There's preventing things from happening, detecting that things have happened, and then responding once something has happened. And my corner of the world is, is prevention. Correct. Uh, there are times we're pulled into incident response because we're so intimately familiar with a system and our customer asks us to, but you have to really build a business uh, completely differently to be effective at incident response than at the ethical hacking side. They're, they're really different models. They require different types of people. The service delivery models are really different. So mm -hmm. yeah, we're more on the prevention side. So for prevention, uh, this also kind of segues into your book where I'm assuming that the book is a collection of your experience over time and you've tried to put that all in a model in a way that somebody else can also learn from. But is it possible at all to have a knowledge base of these things with so many things changing? And how would one get introduced to this? I'm sure your book will help there. But what does one do after reading the book? Yeah. 
So there's a question within your question, which is uh, essentially, how do you write a book about technology that stays relevant given that technology changes really fast? And so what I intentionally did was I, I, I did not want to write the book that was the, here's the how-to guide on how to write this tool, the 2019 edition or you know whatever. I, I didn't think that was going to, I didn't want to solve that problem. The problem I wanted to solve was how does an organization who is actively trying to change their corner of the world, right? They're, they're using technology to solve a problem and they realize that security is an important part of that. But when they go try to solve their security problems, the information they're getting tends to be really wrong. That was one of the things that I observed. And that was, that was the real lightning bolt that motivated me to write this book. Cause I was like, that that's terrible. A company sees they have a security challenge. They try to go solve it and information that gets wrong. Like I can't stand here and let that happen anymore. So that was the problem that I wanted to solve. I wanted to say, how can someone who's building a software system and security is important to them? How can I make sure they get it done right? And so to do that, so much of the book is about, and, and I, I'm, I say that as so much of the book, but really so much of how to solve the problem. It's, whether I wrote it in the book or not, the, the reality was the same. It's about how do we approach things and how do we do them? In, in a programmatic way, more so than what is the button that I should click first on this interface. And so in that regard, I would be willing to bet that the book that I wrote will probably be relevant for securing software systems for, I don't even know, decades, because the principles that are in it were relevant decades ago. Just people don't know how to think about them. And so I'm packaging them in a way that hopefully helps people think about them differently. So to answer the part of your question that was, where does someone get the foundation and what do they do next? I, yeah, I actually, I wrote this book for more. I originally was writing it for like CTO and equivalent, you know, people who their butt was on the line in terms of building this secure solution. But as I published it, what I realized was, this serves way more than them. This serves security professionals, this serves software developers. So I think really anybody trying to get their head around how to use secure a software system, this would be a great foundation. And then what someone would do next, once they've read the book and they say, okay, now I understand the approach. I understand how to think about it. I understand all the pieces. I understand how I should contextualize this in the context of a business. And then they have whatever their next discrete problem is. And they say, okay, well, right now we're... We're struggling with penetration testing. Well, that's where they might reach out to me or somebody else who's in that field and help guide them on their particular challenge, point them to other books, or just you know advise them one-on-one -on -one or go take them through a security assessment, whatever. So that's really, I think, what the progression would ultimately uh, be for somebody. That's good. You answered my next question, primarily in terms of who the target audience was. A related thing is once you understand these concepts, you know, how would you suggest that it is balanced with some pragmatism? Because this is triggered by some of my experience recently. Now, my bank used to have a fairly secure way of logging in and also any transactions. So there was an app that would generate uh, a password. And then every time it is dynamic, you had to do that. But most recently, they also wanted to introduce this two-factor authentication. And every time I log in, I also get a one-time password. Now, yeah, probably it makes it more secure. But from a user experience or a usability perspective, I do find that an additional barrier. If I'm using a trusted device, if I'm using, okay, hopefully, trusted passwords and things that are hard to crack and so on, I was quite comfortable with that. When these additional layers are introduced, 
there is a certain hesitation or probably irritation on the part of the users. You know, so how does one build in security that is unobtrusive? That is, that's the classic question that there are so many smart minds studying to try to, to solve for. And the short answer is what we need to do is the simplest security is going to be the security that integrates into what the user already is doing. So, and that's, that's a bit of a, an aspiration and probably unachievable in a lot of ways, but it's not impossible. And we can see so many amazing advancements. And, and first of all, we should of course note that multi-factor authentication is one of the most important evolutions in security in the last you know, decade or, or a couple of decades, because it has fundamentally exponentially improved the security of systems where it's implemented. I mean, it's, it's not like this is kind of a little annoying and we get a little bit of a benefit. It's like, we get a ton of benefit for a little bit of annoyance, but the people who have really figured out how do we win with something like multi-factor authentication are the people who we can, we can trace it back to, you know, fingerprint ID integrated right into the home button. You know, when the iPhone came out and it first had the thumbprint ID on the button that you already push to open the phone. That is an amazing example of improving security without interrupting the user experience because you're already doing it. You're already using that thumb to already push that button. And, you know, biometrics, of course, have a problem with them. You only have that one right thumb. So if that somehow gets compromised, like, okay, we can't really change your thumbprint. But nevertheless, the, the data is kind of nuts when you look at it of people who didn't use passcodes on their phones before that. And now it's almost everybody uses passcodes. And it's even easier now with Face ID, where you just look at the thing and it unlocks. I mean, talk about innovation. That's incredible. And so I, I use those as examples of where those are examples of the aspiration. We can say it's possible. We can make things more secure while making it just as the same level of friction or maybe less friction. And so the fact that those examples exist are the things that should uh, signal to us that hey, we should have hope. We can get there. Even though it is hard, we shouldn't give up and say that it's either usability or it's security. We can actually have both. And at the same time, I think as users, we need to accept that, hey, you know, maybe we have to change our behaviors a little bit. And all we have to do to realize that the grumpiness that many of us might feel about additional security steps is just look at a child. <laughs> My niece, I was uh, visiting with her uh, a few months ago. She's five. And she's like, Uncle Teddy, I want to I wanna show you this thing I'm doing in my class. So she pulls out her iPad, fires up her password, gets the notification, fires up the multi-factor authentication, uh, and did, you know, this five-year-old did this dual uh, step. And at no point was she like, oh, isn't this annoying? It was just, she just did it. It was just second right. nature. And so as we continue to evolve these techniques, people who are more native to them will have no problem with it. And there's going to be things where as we get older, we're like, oh, now I got to, I got to like think a thing so that the chip in my brain does it. Like, we're not going to like that, but the younger generations won't have a problem with it. Yeah. I think we are pretty much getting near to our time. I usually like to ask one question for all our guests, which is more like a career advice. What do you think will tell someone that, they can make a career in security, whether they are starting out or, as I said earlier, 
the mid-career crisis, saying that I'm fed up with what I'm doing and can I become a security professional? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a few ways that I'd answer the question, but anyone who's interested in it and has the baseline requirements, you know, uh, curiosity, aptitude, you're a lifelong learner, those types of things, there's a home for you in security. And don't let, there's, there's this weird thing that happens in security that's so dumb, where on one hand, we're, we're always lamenting that there's this huge shortage of professionals in security, but then the requirements that we make for entering any of these jobs are ridiculously astronomical. You know, like all the time, security, entry-level security jobs require a master's degree. It's like, that's not entry level. Let's, let's pump the brakes here. But my advice to somebody who wants to enter or wants to pivot and is wondering, you know, is this the right place for me? These are the conditions that exist here. So my advice to you would be to ask yourself if uh, these are the types of conditions that you want to be surrounded by. I certainly did. And that's why I've made this my career. Um, but one is, are you driven to improve every day? And that means improve yourself improve your peers, improve your company, and ultimately improve the organization around you. And it's okay if you're not. I mean, there's plenty of people who are fine just being like, just going with the flow. But if you're the kind of person who says, hey, I can make this better tomorrow than it is today, security is probably a pretty good place for you. If you are stimulated by being surrounded by really intelligent people who are going to constantly provoke and challenge the way that you think, security might be the right place for you. And that's not right for everybody. Some people don't necessarily like that academic sort of a challenge. Uh, and there's no judgment in that. But if you're stimulated by that, this is a great, great, great place for you. And finally, if, if you're excited to be in a place that kind of has this really interesting mixture of on one end, it's definitely, there's, it's corporate, there's huge companies, enormous amounts of money getting spent on, you know, everything. But the vibe is a bunch of just nerds. Like everyone is just cool and hanging out and um, really comfortable in themselves, but also really uncomfortable because we're all nerds. Uh, if that's the kind of vibe that you, you want to be around where it's, uh, you know, you get kind of the, some of the benefits of corporations, but without the sort of buttoned up ultra conservativeness that happens in, in other industries, like maybe banking or healthcare, things like that, then this might be a place for you. That's nicely put. Thanks a lot, Ted, for this wonderful conversation. And uh, this has only triggered a lot more questions. Hopefully, we'll uh, be able to catch up some other time. And probably it's better for people. I will definitely mention uh, a link to your podcast because you do have all these conversations as well as your book and uh, the website. So Indeed. thanks a lot. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if, if anything that we talked about today, for any of you who are listening out there, if you had follow-up questions and you want help with anything, I'm super easy to get a hold of. If you want to know about my podcast, which you just mentioned there, you want to know more about the book, you want to know about our security testing practice, however I can help you. You want to follow me on social media, whatever you need, uh, just go to tedharrington.com and all my contact info is there. Just there's a, I'm, I'm easy to get a hold of. I want to help you however I can. Thanks, Ted. Thank you. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people's stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcast at pm-powerconsulting.com.